something outside. What is that? Radio, Shane Corson here, and of course, Monster X Radio is brought to you by Sasquatch Coffee. Have you tried it yet? Uh, now, I've got a really uh, fun show planned for this evening. A great uh, friend of mine is joining me in Derek Randalls. Derek Randalls is, of course, the co-founder of the Olympic Project. He's uh, somebody that I've looked up to for a number of years that's taught me so much not just in regards to research and and Sasquatch, but also just field work, uh, how to be skeptical in the field, uh, tracking, surviving in the woods. This guy that I really look up to, he's he's a mentor of mine. He's he's my brother from another mother. And, of course, Derek Randalls has been involved in research for over 30 years. Like I said, the co-founder of the Olympic Project, he had an encounter back in 1985 that really launched him into this field, and Derek has worked with a number of uh, top researchers, scientists, biologists, kind of laid a lot of groundwork for where I'm at now in regards to this subject matter. The Lynn Project involves dedicated researchers, investigators, biologists, and trackers really committed to documenting the existence of Sasquatch through science and education, through comprehensive habitat study, DNA analysis, and game camera deployment, And our goal is, of course, to uh, obtain as much information as we can and provide evidence with the hopes of being as prepared as possible that one day down the road, if species verification does come into fruition, uh, that we can provide a plethora of data. And so that's what uh, the Lent Project is about. That's what Derek Randalls is about. And I'm very proud to be associated with the Lent Project. I'm going to bring Derek Randalls aboard here. Hey, Derek, how you doing? Hey Shane, how's it going, man? Hey man, it's going great. I'm super stoked to have you on the show this evening. Uh, we've we've had you on the show before, and uh, for those of you that are not familiar with Derek Randall's, please refer back to some of our past episodes where Derek's gone in length uh, on his past, what really launched him into research. We're not going to touch upon tonight his encounter. It's it's you know it's out there. We've had it on the show before. What I'd like to delve into tonight is what Mr. Randall's has been up to recently. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the nest work that you're all familiar with as listeners, you know, going forward with, uh, in the agenda. So, Derek, uh, once again, thanks for joining Monster X Radio. I would say, you know, uh, first question going out there is, what the heck have you been up to? I know what you've been up to. I've been a part of it. We've been doing a lot of off-trail hiking and, and whatnot. But, uh, you know, for, for the viewers, what the heck have you been up to? Well, for the last few months here, as you well know, I've been just pretty much trying to keep up with you in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've been, uh, Shane and I, and uh, Gunner and Larry and, and, you know, David Ellis, and we were 
work in this nest area. We're trying to learn all we can out of it. And uh, for the last few months, basically, what we've tried to do is kind of close the door on this this one particular uh, ravine and ridge that we've been working where we've documented 21 nests. These are, uh, of course, the, the nests that uh, resemble gorilla nests. So in the last couple months, what we've concentrated on is trying to sew up every loose end on this particular ravine. Like, uh, as you know, Shane, uh, Shane and I went down a couple weeks ago into the lowest part of this ravine. There was actually two small areas that we hadn't researched in this one ravine. So what we're trying to what we're trying to accomplish is to make sure that this whole ravine complex that we're working, this 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 one primary nesting ravine, is we want to we've been trying to search every square inch of it, and I think we now have that accomplished just within the last couple weeks. Uh, we thought we had it pretty much done, and then there was there was an area down lower, uh, down closer to I would say what you'd call the headwaters of it, uh, that had a false ridge down in the ravine, and we actually crawled through that and uh, yeah it was some of the some of the thickest stuff out there and it's already incredibly thick so that was pretty painstaking but it was a lot of fun and uh it was pretty brutal but i i can confidently say as i'm i'm sure you can that we've pretty much explored this ravine top to bottom and so being able to close the door on that and now start focusing on the next ravine in proximity is is kind of where we're at right now so just you know a little bit of an update uh as you already know of course but uh, the next ravine is, you know, it's not very far away from this one. It's got a lot of the same aspects as the primary one that we've been working with. And uh, so it just, it, I, I think it's 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 tough to articulate how much time it takes to actually explore this particular type of terrain because it's so ungodly thick and it's very challenging. And oh, so and we, we actually end up just crawling, you know, crawling where you can't get through this wall. You know, you actually have to kind of crawl through it and, a couple Olympic Project members have had the uh, good fortune of getting out there lately with us and uh, have gotten a real good look at what, what it's like uh, and just how, how gnarly it really is. So we've got a, well, we've got another camp set up on this, this next ravine that we're going to research, and we've had a couple nights spent there and got, got some, you know, a couple of vocalizations on and off. Not sure exactly what they are, but some ground movement and some things that are happening out there. And so now we're just uh, ready to start really combing through this next area so that's kind of what we've been up to Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i will say that the area that uh, you know though we've taken a few olin project members out to some of these areas the area that you and i had recently traversed through was some of the thickest stuff i've ever been uh through it it looked very promising it was an area you know you pointed out to me that we needed to look into uh, but i'll tell you what it was so sick you being a couple of feet away from me, I couldn't see you and having to uh, be on all fours at times. It was a very promising area. Uh, of course, it it matched everything that we'd be looking for, given what we kind of think we know with, in regards to the initial uh, nest site. But still, it was uh, ridiculously thick, wet, but had it was very promising. You know, I was I, I'd be honest with you, I was kind of shocked that we didn't come across a similar scenario. And I remember you commenting, Derek that uh, it actually left more questions than answers. Yeah, but, you know, I've, I've had time, you know, as, as you have, had time to think about it a little bit, and there, there's a couple things that just really stand out, really step out when, you know, looking at this area. Like Shane said, this one, this last area that we, we searched had all of the same characteristics that the original nest site did, and it is still attached to the same ravine. And but we weren't finding anything in this in the lower reaches of it, and so it really makes you start wondering why. Well, 
it, a couple of the answers I think might be obvious, and it's just kind of something we're just thinking about right now, but where the primary nest site is in this particular ravine is the remotest part of this ravine. It's the most remote and the hardest to get to, and it takes the most time to get to, which in turn, you know, if I was a Sasquatch and I had a, a family group or whatever and I wanted to stay hidden, that in this entire ravine where we found the majority of the nests would be the best bet as far as keeping hidden and uh, keeping, you know, anonymity back back in there. And so I think that that could have something to do with it. And but it also it also slaps you in the face with just how I don't know whether rare is the word or just how how crazy it is, you know, that this isn't found more often. Because in the primary part of this nest area, I, I would say the the middle third of it is where the majority of the nests are. And there's just a you know 21 that we've documented. And could we have missed a few? Yes, but I I think we've got most of them found. And but it, it's just I've never seen this repeated anywhere in in any fashion you know other than a, a nest here or a nest there you know that have, that have been documented over the years but nothing like these numbers so it makes you wonder what was this area used for and we've touched on a whole lot of theories at the conferences that we do and the presentations that we give as far as okay is it is it a possible breeding area is it is it an area where they just come and, and eat the salmon and then rest uh, unabated un, unmolested to where they can just eat and get their protein and rest where nothing's going to sneak up on them and it's just it just it really really scratches your brain trying to figure out why and so that's why i'm so excited to you know get into this next ravine that has a lot of the same characteristics and see if we can find a similar situation in the in the most remote reaches of that ravine right and uh, we've got our work cut out because in this area you know it's in the eastern olympics in this area, there's several ravines in in proximity, and it's going to take a long time to get them all searched. Uh, <laughs> even when you've got you know quite a few sets of boots on the ground, it is still it's just so time consuming because it's so thick. But uh, yeah, I'm just I'm as excited today as I was the first day, you know, because it's just it's just such an anomaly. So I, I can't yeah. wait. To, to, I can't wait for this season and you know getting in there this spring and hitting it super hard. And I hope that uh, you know we've got a lot more to talk about because our our hopes and aspirations are if we can make this whole dynamic repeatable or if we can see that it's repeatable and because that's going to tell a lot lot bigger story and help us along with the hypothesis that we're working on so i'm excited man i know you are too oh i i'm i'm itching to get out and we've been doing that uh, but we have you know painstakingly researched maps and areas and we've pinpointed a few locations even outside the study area that we think there's a chance, you know, a possibility of repeatability when it comes to finding this sort of setup, you know, as as much as it could be. Uh, you know, you never know. Uh, this could be a, a weird phenomenon. We don't know. Uh, it's all hypothesizing, but we could. Well, you know, possibly, I'm glad you touched on yeah. that, Shane, because there's a point I want to make here before it slips my brain. But, you know, people are, you know, maybe some people are wondering, you know, what's the end, what's the end game here? What's the end result? Well, if we can find that this is repeatable, or if it if it happened is it happened again in proximity, then we can pretty much at that point put together a kind of a what you'd call I don't know what you'd call it, but like an evidence package to where we can say okay to another group of researchers in another area, give it Western Oregon or somewhere else in the Olympics or whatever, and we can say okay here's what we know, and now let's see if it can be regionally found in another area, and so we're we're just about to the point where we're gonna you know we are going to write a paper up on this. 
and as scientific of a paper as possible, and uh, you know maybe even with uh, with hopes of getting it published. But what what the cool thing is, and to what end, people are wondering, is if we can if we can get this ball of evidence or this ball of just this the patterns that we're that we're finding in this ravine. If we can take those patterns with the elevations, the directions, uh, the proximity to the Salmon Creek, the abundant huckleberry. And then give this package of stuff to another, you know, research group that's working in another region, and then they can start looking for it. You know, so we can—it's just kind of like sharing the research. You know, once we get to a certain point where we say, okay, this is like the perfect storm. This is where we found all these beds. You know, if indeed they are Sasquatch beds, and then we can give that information as far as all of the little uh, intricacies of the area to other research groups, and they can go look in their study areas in, the, in similar situations to see if they can start finding these nests. And right. uh, there's, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of particulars with this, with this particular place. You know, it, it's, it's, it hasn't been logged in just over 50 years. Very close proximity to a salmon creek. The, you know, they, they run directional. The, the finger ridges that are in this ravine are all pointing to the west. You know, so there, there's just a bunch of stuff that uh, we've patterned so we, we can we can just take this information and, and you know once we once we got a great handle on it and say here see what you can do with it to other research groups and it could yield some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, I think it's already yielded a lot of cool stuff. Whether it's uh, some of this uh, unknown hair, uh, the fashion of the nests, the location, everything else that's included in that. I think it's already yielded some really significant results, and, and but nothing yet conclusive. But having said that. Derek, I mean, uh, we, we talked about this before, and I know you've been uh, on the circuit with speaking about this in certain symposiums and on a certain uh, radio shows. But there's a, there's a lot to these nests that really, I mean, it's something that I've come to, to find to be every time I'm out in this area, and I'm out there, you know, frequently as much as I humanly can be. I've just found to be so profound with all the characteristics that you just described. It's amazing to me, uh, but yet when I look back on it, I go, okay, well, these are areas that people are, you know, your average person is not traversing through. There's no reason for a person to be in this area, regardless of the activity, whether it's hunting, hiking, you, you name it. There's no reason for a person to be in this area, and I think that really, for me, is one of the key aspects to why these uh, nests are built, uh, regardless of it's Sasquatch. You know, I lean towards Sasquatch based on a lot of things, but, you know, regardless of what made these nests, they were made, and they were made for a reason in this area. But it is profound to me, it is profound to me uh, that it's an area that it's very difficult to get into, that is very secluded and hidden, and you have all these nutrients, all these things available to whatever made these nests it's mind-boggling, isn't it? Oh, it is absolutely mind-boggling. It really is. And and you know, like we were talking, we were on our last hike we were on a couple of weeks ago. Because at, at this point, come May, will be three years since uh, these first nests were discovered and we were led to them. And so in May, three years ago, when we first happened upon these, they were still green. I mean, they were predominantly still green. And it's just it's just riveting when I look back and look at the pictures of, of them and just how much they stood out and how, you know, it's just unbelievable. You walk through the forest and you see one of these things and it just <laughs> sets you back. And when you look at the pictures, you know, the pictures that we have of when they were fresh, it really just smacks you in the face. Because now, after three years, the nests are still there, but they're, you know, all the greenery, obviously the foliage has died away. So they're basically stick, you know, they're, they're, they're big nests, but they're just sticks. They're without any green foliage. They're still incredibly impressive. 
but when they were green, it was just like smack you in the face. It was just unbelievable. So oh, yeah. But another Absolutely. thing I wanted to add too, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but uh, I do want to say it before I forget. I know that a lot of people, when 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 we took Dr. Meldrum out there, uh, he went out with the sole purpose. With a, we invited him out and kind of gave him warning that it was very rugged, unforgiving terrain. But uh, as he's always been, he was a trooper and went right through it with us and uh, stayed the course. And he ended up sampling, I believe, four of the beds, or getting getting uh, core samples out of four of the beds for a eDNA study. And uh, so what's going on is he came out and he took these samples, and then when he got the samples, he put up a GoFundMe page, uh, or a, I think it was GoFundMe. I'm not sure which one it was. But uh, anyway, Indigo, and, yeah, like, Indigo, yeah, Indigo, yeah, and so quite a bit of money was was garnered. I think enough to to run three different uh, nest samples, which was great. And so a lot of people contributed to that, and I and I realized that it was a while back, but the wheels of the science turned very slowly. So if anybody's listening that was a contributor, uh, a quick update here: uh, the Todd Disatel has agreed to run the eDNA, and he has to do some work in his lab. Had to do some work in his lab to get it set up to run. And then he also uh, elicited the help of a, a graduate student, I believe, that's going to help him do this this new DNA technique, this environmental DNA. And uh, as a, as we speak, the the samples are going to Todd right now. So I believe uh, Mel, uh, Dr. Meldrum shipped them today. And I know that Todd is very close to being ready to run them. So I think this is going to go very very quickly here. So we should have some type of preliminary results here very very soon. So everybody's on board, and that's what's happening, and we're just kind of waiting to see. Now, that being said, this environmental DNA is brand new, and uh, there's still some idi- you know, idiosyncrasies in the procedure. So we're hoping for the best, and what we're, what we're kind of hoping for, just to dumb it down a little bit, is to, is to come up with a strand of DNA that is close to human but not, or close to ape but not, uh, because obviously there is no Sasquatch DNA to compare it up against. But I think the, the findings that, are, that could possibly be found would be of monumental importance, depending on, on, on what he finds. Mm-hmm. So those wheels are turning. That's happening as we speak. And uh, that's, that's the latest update on that. Yeah, what's exciting about that? You know, obviously, you know, I know, Derek, you personally have talked to Todd Disatel, you know, he, you know obvious scientist. Um, and he himself said, you know, it's not a perfect science. So, I mean, there's always... There's always, you know, things to be worked out, but uh, given the amount of samples, you know, we're obviously excited about it, uh, and we'll see what comes of this, but it is, it is, the thing about what we've been working on for the last several years, it's been very tedious, it's very, very time-consuming. You mentioned this time and time again, Derek, where we've done everything on our part as laymen, as non-scientists, as, as right. much as we can, now we're handing it off to those that can actually get results and excited about it, you know, uh, it, there's a lot to be said about that. I think in this day and age, everybody wants results here and, and now and, and sort of scenario, uh, but, uh, you know, that's not science and that's not how it works. Uh, there's been past studies done before, you've been involved with them, that have been a train wreck, and uh, mm-hmm. I, what I'm really stoked about this time around is the amount of uh, patience and uh, the tedious amount of field work uh, involved in the collaboration involved with this particular study in this study area that uh, is unprecedented as far as I know, and it's that to me is uh, a step forward and very exciting. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's important to mention that you know when we 
we, we, we very quickly, three years ago, saw the magnitude, at least the potential of this site. I mean, it hit us right away. And so we decided that we didn't want to do it like we've always done it or like a lot of people have already done it. You know, we didn't want to go in and carpet bomb it with cameras. Uh, some cameras were placed in there, but they were very strategic, fairly hidden, and very few because this is a very big area. I think we only had, I think at the most we had in there at one time was seven cameras strung out. But uh, in in no way, shape, or form did we put cameras everywhere. That's that's not even the case at all. But we just took our time, and you know we realized this was going to be a multi-year study. Uh, we were lucky enough that the, the the landowners allowed us, you know, years up to five years to to work this area, and so we were very fortunate. So we decided we were going to really walk slowly before we ran, and uh, try to number one document these nests the way they should be documented, which we have done, 21 of them. And then when it did come time to do samples, you know, we, we went in and we got hair samples, and uh, several of those hairs have come back unknown, which is which is very cool. And But then also, most importantly, when uh, Dr. Meldrum came out to take the core samples out of some of the nests themselves, scientific protocol was followed, and it was filmed. So, I mean, everything from, you know, gloved-up hair nets, uh, using, you know, as sterile of a situation as possible, the nests or the, the samples were gathered properly under scientific protocol. So that's yeah. that's a big thing, and we didn't rush it. We tried to take our time and do it smart, and so that's kind of where we're at right now. And you know, it's I'm real. Given the last thirty some odd years that I've been doing this, I'm real. I don't know, if proud's the right word, but I'm real happy that we went about it this way, and we didn't just rush mm-hmm. in and stick people in trees and you know camp <laughs> out in there all the time and you know woo and knock and all that kind of stuff. We're really trying to do it as scientifically as we're capable of. But like you said, you know, we hit the point where one of the things that we're pretty good at is finding stuff and documenting the location and then, you know, gathering evidence. We're pretty good at that stuff, but then we hit a wall because none of us are scientists. So that's why mm-hmm. we decided to uh, get a scientist involved and then uh, and a geneticist. Uh, luckily, we've got a geneticist that's going to run the stuff. And it's, it's also worth being said that, you know, geneticists are not lining up to run Sasquatch stuff. Uh, very very tough to even get anybody to run DNA on anything Bigfoot related. So I'm very grateful that uh, Dr. Todd Disatel has agreed to do this. Uh, right. Very you know, big shout out to him if he's listening to this at all. But uh, very very thankful uh, because you know he's he's pretty skeptical as well. And uh, but the fact that he's willing to do it at all it, it's a big thing, and we're very grateful. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And one of the things I'd like to get across to, uh, pardon me, to the, to the audience is that even from day one in regards to this study area and to regards to um, the research of this area, there was uh, academia involved, there was scientists involved, whether it was uh, sending them stuff or having them in the field, uh, they were involved uh, because, you know, we only can do so much as, as field researchers, as non academic uh, individuals, and they were involved um, almost from day one, and, and that was really cool for me because, you know, like Dr. Todd Distel, I know one of his key uh, things he's always said was, you know, if, if it's uh, not documented correctly and it's not filmed and it's not a sterile uh, collection, he's not going to look at whatever evidence you right. send him regardless, and, uh, and we took care of that, and by doing that, we had, you know, uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum from out of state university come out to lead that. And uh, that was quite an amazing experience all by itself, having him there, getting his reaction, 
learning some stuff from him and, and collecting everything in a sterile environment and recording it on video. I know uh, Dr. Todd Distel, you know, had, has seen all this stuff, and uh, I know he's all aboard, regardless of whatever outcome. He's, he's fully aboard on looking at this stuff. Super excited about uh, the possibilities here because it, it, it's not been one of these scenarios where anybody's been jumping the gun and not, you know, been contaminating some of this stuff. Uh, it'll be uh, thoroughly vetted, and one point in time there will be a paper written up about this. And so it's it's an exciting time for me personally. Uh, I think it's an exciting time for Bigfoot research in general, and I think it's a step forward, like I've said before, in in the right direction. Derek, I agree. No. Yeah, absolutely. So, one other there, thing I'd like to add, Shane, yeah, too, is, go ahead. is we take this really seriously, this site and this study, because I think all of us, you know, that have been working this site, see the potential here, and what we can learn. And, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but I do speak, and Shane, you've spoke uh, at, at uh, conferences. You know, we spoke about these nests several times now, and consequently, there have been three different production companies that want, have wanted to come in and film in this area and do mini documentaries and we've just said no because that's not that's not what it's about you know before we get any results especially we're not you know let, let's get some results before we even you know venture down that road but uh, three different times in the last three years I've been approached because of speaking at conferences by film companies that want to come out and, and document this and we've just just said a flat no because that's not what it's about we're, we're trying to do this correctly you know, we really are. And, you know, maybe we're not doing it 100% correct, but we are doing it to the very best of our ability and, and trying to keep it as scientific as possible. So it does mean a lot to us. We take it very seriously. It's not just another opportunity to be on camera or anything like that. This is, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the realest, coolest, most, the, big, the biggest accumulation of evidence I've ever been involved with in the years that I've done this. So we just, we, yeah. t- we take it real seriously, and, and we've got the high hopes on where it could go. Yeah, I know you nailed it. I'm glad you brought that up there. I mean, I I can't say enough how serious we take this, uh, how painstaking and and, uh, time brutal in in our endeavors uh, when it goes into this sort of research specifically with the nest study area. It's been... uh, it's been a learning curve. It's been it's been fun. It's been uh, painful, uh, but I'll tell you what. One of the things that I will say is, yeah, uh, yeah, being approached by uh, multiple agencies, you know, networks and whatnot, uh, and turning them down. You know, I, I would venture to say there's a lot of people that would jump aboard that. But you know what? That's been done. That's been done in the past, and it usually leads down a bad road. I think when mo- most would admit, uh, it's not usually a positive thing. And at the end of the day, you got to look at yourself. And go, what what are you really trying to achieve? Are you looking exactly. for, <clears throat> pardon me, TV time, or are you looking for results? And uh, I know for for you and I, and, and the rest of the Olympic project, about results. Uh, we're you know the TV thing. You know, it, it, you know it's fun. <laughs> it's fun. Doesn't uh, it's not what we're about. It's not what I think the the subject deserves. At the end of the day, all that can come later down the road. But right now, focusing on on results and and collecting of data and collaborating with uh, science uh, based uh, organizations that's that's really where the subject needs to go, and I b- believe is going at least in regards to what we're doing. Yeah, and you know, on top of that, you know, this year, 2018, is uh, anybody who's familiar with the Olympic Project, you you know that we do public we host public expeditions every year, anywhere from two to four of them. And uh, we also speak at conferences a lot. That's basically where we share this information is, is at conferences uh, rather than Facebook or social media. It doesn't really belong there. But 
this year, you know, I made a decision uh, in the fall of last year that in 2018 and beyond, I'm not speaking at any more conferences. And we're not doing any public expeditions this year because I want to take every available hour that I have, as I know you do, and we want to spend in this next ravine and uh, studying what we're studying. You know, that's that's the magnitude in the of this, you know, the potential here. And so we're, we just kind of shut down some of the stuff that we're doing so we can devote as much time as possible out there. So I'm not going to be speaking. Uh, the last the last conference I spoke at was uh, in Longview a few weeks ago, and great experience. But uh, until we get further on this, I don't feel like I have anything else to say. <laughs> you know, I don't want to get up and repeat the same old stuff. You know, people that go to these, these conferences deserve to hear new stuff. And uh, we're at a point right now where we're trying to learn, and I don't I don't feel like it. There's just anything else to say, and and we just wanted. And as far as the expeditions are concerned, expeditions are fantastic. We've met hundreds and hundreds of fantastic people. We've taught a lot of very effective classes. We've just had a great time, uh, found some evidence, and just just had a, a great experience with the expeditions. But then again, those are all weekends. You know, for it, for for us, it's a four or five day excursion that we could be spending out out there. So, this year we're going to be focusing, and possibly probably next year as well, just on doing this. You know, and just staying in country and, and doing that to get as many results as we can. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. <clears throat> well said, well said, and and I'm uh, completely on board with you there. Every. Uh, you know, I know for you and, and I and, and many others that are involved in the Lunar Project, any moment we can spend uh, searching some of these other uh, areas, because some of these areas are vast. I mean, they're vast, they're thick, they're nasty, uh, they're dangerous. It's time-consuming, and it's not uh, necessarily even a day trip. Some of these areas, I mean, it's, it's, some, it's an area, well, these areas are areas you're going to be looking into for weeks on end, uh, not, not consecutively per se, but areas that you're going to go into and, and come back out of uh, every uh, given that time of year, you know, similar to West, you know, in the weather and everything else, at times we, we want to be in the field. But, uh, Derek, one of the things I wanted to really get across to a lot of people here is uh, some of the people involved in, in these nest study, not just your, you know, Dr. Jeff Meldrum and, and whatnot, but some of the original people that came across these nests and why they're, why they're significant, not being a, of uh, no nature. I think that's something that I can't uh, stress enough. You know, I get, a, I get uh, emails and comments and PMs all the time about, well, could it be this? Could it be that? And I don't think people really appreciate the fact that uh, the, the originality of, of how these nests came to be found and those that have uh, seen these nests, you know, their experience in the woods in general uh, have been we pretty much seen everything out there. Well, and that, that's, that's a great point. And, you know, I think to sum it up really easily, we've spent the last three years trying to prove everything that it isn't. You know, we, we started with the very, within the first week of looking, laying eyes upon these nests, we were in contact with two bear biologists trying to rule out bear, which we have significantly done. And, and, and actually a third one was involved as well. Uh, and then we went to people that study uh, apes in the Amazon and monkeys. And uh, so we went down that road. And then, you know, we've looked at everything, you know, from porcupines to otters to every, everything you can imagine that has ever built a nest. And so along with searching, searching these ridges and documenting these 21 nests that we found, the whole time we've been ruling, trying to rule stuff out. You know, because it's just kind of our way. We're going to rule out everything else 
100% as far as we can humanly possible before we even say, okay, this is very well could be a Sasquatch bed because that's the way it's got to be done. Otherwise, it's not going to stand on its own weight. So we've spent just an enormous amount of time trying to make sure, make damn sure that it's not a bear bed or make damn sure that they're not porcupine nests. And so it's, it's just been a process of eliminating stuff. You know, eliminating stuff, and then at some point we're going to get to where you eliminate everything. There's only going to be one more thing that it could be. You know, and it's it's pretty compelling. You know, I have I have I have opinions and thoughts. I don't share them publicly, but I'm 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 pretty convinced of what we're dealing with at this point, at least in my brain. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm you know having been out there to to the study area multiple times. I'm fairly convinced of what I'm dealing with, uh, and it's just a matter of proving it at this point. You know, but for, uh, there's a lot going on in this whole vicinity, inside the nest area, outside the nest area. This area has a rich history of sightings and reports. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, without uh, disclosing any locations or anything like that, this this particular area, there have been a multitude of tracks found, a lot of vocalizations recorded, and a whole bunch of you know what you would call like a Class A sightings. Uh, the area the area has a history. Uh, and, you know, along with that, other than just these nests, there's other, you know, batches of evidence that, that are along with them, like the unknown hair that we've pulled out of the nests, uh, the rocks that were found that have been beat on repeatedly. And then you, you couple that in with the tracks that have been found in vicinity and, and all the reports, you know, and not right there, of course. It's very remote, but in the surrounding area. Uh, there's just, there's just a, lot of, a lot of stuff, you know, pointing that direction. And, you know, I don't, I haven't talked about this. I don't know if I've ever talked about this on a radio show, but uh, hunting season uh, a year ago, I was in that area and uh, basically going in to, in proximity, not right there, but I saw something in there on, on, a, on a day that uh, I can't explain. I can't explain. I can't say it was a Sasquatch, but I can tell you, I'm quite sure it wasn't uh, a bear. I'm quite sure it wasn't an elk, and I'm quite sure it wasn't a deer. But uh, I saw something tugging on a tree that, with with force that was completely inhuman. And I know this because I saw it, and my wife saw it. Uh, we were coming down a, a gravel road, and again, right not not right there, but you know, within you know a few air miles of the area. And uh, we were coming around a corner. And there was a tree that was flapping as if, as if, say, an excavator was getting ready to uproot it and take it out of the ground. And my wife saw it first, and she goes, oh, my God, something is reefing on that tree. And granted, we're about 200 yards away, and I can see this tree just madly whipping, and the top of it just whipping like to, where, to the point where I thought the tree was going to come uprooted. And I actually pulled my rifle up and looked through my scope. Or no, excuse me, I had my binoculars with me, and I pulled my binoculars up thinking, okay, it's got to be, you know, a bear or something like that. And I pulled my uh, binoculars up, and the minute I got them up, it stopped. And then I pulled my binoculars down, and right as I did that, something very tall and blondish in color left the tree to the right into the woods at a very high rate of speed. And so what I could see was about what looked like about three foot of a torso, and it, you know, I, I, we weren't close enough for any detail or anything like that, but I saw this blonde object shoot from the tree into the timber, and I ran back up to the pickup, and I, I asked my wife, Tori, I said, well, did you just see something? She goes, I just saw something blonde run from the tree. And so instantly I knew we both saw the same thing. So 
we drove down to where the tree was, uh, keeping our eye on the exact tree, and by the, when I got down to the tree and looked at it, I actually got scared because this tree was about six, six to seven inches in, in uh, diameter, and I walked up to the first thing I did is I, I walked into the brush to the tree and started shoving on the tree, and I, I could only move the top about two inches. Well, what we saw, the top was so violently shaking, probably about 15 feet back and forth. That it, again, it, we thought the tree was going to come uprooted. And uh, when I pushed on that tree and realized how incredibly <laughs> strong that tree was, <laughs> and I'm not a little guy, you know, I'm 220 pounds, and I put everything I had into it, and all I could do was just make the top move just a very little bit. And then I looked on the inbound side of the tree, and there was bruising on the bark. No broken limbs, no scratch marks, just bruising about six and a half feet up. And then my wife had hopped out of the truck, and she was looking at me, and then I realized that the salal was up to my neck. And the only thing poking out was the top of my shoulders and my head. So whatever we saw exit that tree and run into the brush was a solid two and a half to three feet taller than me. And uh, that's, that's when the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and uh, <laughs> it was one of those moments like, oh, shit, you know, it was... <laughs> just one of those moments and you know so again i haven't really talked about that publicly because i can't say it was a sasquatch but i can say that it was you know a few not very many air miles from the area and whatever was pushing on this tree and you know there's no there's no documented moose here uh there are you know some scattered elk here and there but uh whatever was pushing on this tree the only thing it left was a little bit of bruising as if you were to cup something with your hands and push on it and uh, yeah it freaked both of us out Big time. Yeah, I, I know. I've I've seen the tree. Uh, you pointed out to me, and and I I went down uh, to this particular tree after you have shown me it and tried to shake it. It felt very weak after what you described. Very weak, in fact. Well, actually, actually, uh, four of us, Shane. Uh, I don't know if you were there that day or not, but four of us gathered around this tree trying to make it do anything similar to what it was doing, and four of us couldn't even, not even remotely close to what was happening. Right. When when my wife and I saw it. Yeah, no, I wasn't there for that particular day, but I, uh, you know, haven't seen a tree. It was mind-boggling uh, the strength that would have taken to whip that thing back and forth. But mm -hmm. uh, then again, my guy was uh, alluding to was that this area and the surrounding areas, 10, you know, 15 miles even in circumference, has had multiple sightings. It's had uh, a lot of strange vocals. Mm -hmm. I even uh, camped out a few years ago in an adjacent area and got something interesting. I've talked about this on the show a little bit, oh, but it's something right. interesting on uh, on a trail camera uh, in an adjacent area where uh, there was uh, a few sightings by some loggers. You know, two different loggers had seen something, and uh, it's, you know, it's it's not, uh, it's interesting. It's not, you know, conclusive, but I did get something on a trail camera. It looked to be bipedal. You know, and, and, but, you know, We've had a lot of people involved, really sound researchers, you know, like Cliff Berkman, those of you know him from Finding Bigfoot, a phenomenal researcher based out of Oregon. We've had, you know, Meldrum and, and bear biologists and, and other biologists involved and trackers and whatnot. But we had a plethora of, you know, science-based people look at this. Uh, and what always blows my mind to this day is the amount of people that have uh, set eyes on these nests and said, hey, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, including, mm -hmm. including the uh, initial uh, guy that uh, found these nests. I mean, we're talking about someone that's been doing what he does for over, uh, you know, 25 years. Reach out to you to say, hey, you know, uh, this is weird uh, and and a little bit freaky. And that to me is is very profound. It's not something that he has seen or any of us at all. 
Yeah, and I could touch on that a little better. You know, the uh, in this particular area, this this man, uh, the one that showed me the nest, me and myself and James Million initially, uh, he has spent the last 26 years of his life surveying timber in remote locations. And so he spends a lot of his time going into timber units uh, that haven't been logged for anywhere from 40 to 70 years and, you know, hanging ribbon lines. That's what he does. That's his job. And when a guy that spends, you know, five days a week doing that calls you up and he says he's found things on the ground that he's never seen before in his life, you know, instantly, you know, my attention, <laughs> he had my attention, you know, that moment. And when, and right. then, of course, you know, when we had uh, went out and hiked out and met with him, uh, yeah, it was just it was unbelievable what we were looking at on the ground there. I, 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 you know, I've spent a lot of, I'm a wilderness guide here in Washington and my, my partner James, uh, is, is actually a partner in my guide service. You know, he and I together have had probably, you know, accumulated 60 years of wilderness time, maybe even more. And, uh, he and I had never seen anything like this, you know? And so it was, it's, it was quite the anomaly. And, uh, we're just, we're very lucky that we were shown this spot in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like I said, it, it, it's profound to me that the amount of it, individuals that have set eyes, the guys that I respect, that know more than me, uh, having set eyes on these nests uh, that, you know, are flabbergasted and blown away, including Dr. Jeff Meldrum having taken him out there to uh, collect soil samples and debris samples from the nest. I mean, he was a bit taken back on what he saw, and that to me was uh, one of the pinnacles in my research was having Dr. Jeff Meldrum out there, a guy that to have him out there to collect the samples and learn from him and just get his initial reaction. Uh, I know it was probably fairly special for you as well, Dirk. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've uh, worked with Jeff for many, many years and I've known him for a long time, but getting him out in the woods is something special. And, you know, I've, I've said this a couple of times, but people assume that he's just a laboratory guy, but I'll tell you what, Dr. Meldrum is very, <laughs> very versed in the wilderness, and he's he's very good in the wilderness. Uh, he's very comfortable mm. out there. He's very capable, and uh, he's always a joy to, to go out in the field with. And, and one of the ones that meant, meant a whole lot to me is also in uh, you know on the second trip out, John Pickering went out with us. And uh, John Pickering is somebody in the Bigfoot world that I've looked up to for decades. Uh, very very smart man, very observant, and and one of the best people in the world to ever be in the woods with or if you're ever if you're ever getting trouble in the woods he, he's a guy you'd want there uh right. he, just, he yeah. knows the wilderness he knows the woods and it was so special on the second day we were there in the in the primary nest area like i was saying john is very observant and he had actually wandered out behind the primary nest area and he hollered at us and we went over and there was actually another nest formation that was being built uh, that had been fabricated in a bush and and the first thing, you know, we're looking at it, and it looked like something was practicing building one of these ground nests in a bush. And it was very perplexing, you know, and, and John found that, and we were, we were looking at it. Well, that night, the next day, I guess when I got home, I was on the Internet and started, you know, I had been researching, you know, gorilla beds and ape beds. And then, then I found out through that research that that is how gorillas teach their young how to build these nests. They'll do a practice nest in a bush. And that one that John found was a, an exact example of what I was looking at online as far as a practice gorilla bed and how they teach their young how to do it. And it, it just, I was flabbergasted. It was amazing. So having him out there and his expertise, he, he, he crawled that area with us on a few, few occasions, and, and that was great as well. I love, love being out in the woods with that man. 
Oh, man, John Pickering's one of my uh, most favorite people on planet Earth. Like I said, a guy that knows how to survive in the woods, knows what to eat, and spends an ungodly amount of time out there that has never really come across anything like this uh, in his thoughts and reaction on what he saw out there stood out to me big time. I haven't been out there before I had made it out there. And, and, you know, before I had made it out there, listening to John Pickering, I was like, oh, man, I got I have to head out to this area to check it out because if, he, if Derek, Derek Randall's is impressed, if John Pickering's impressed, and the other uh, individuals involved with the, the initial find were impressed, uh, oh, man. So, and, and then subsequently, of course, still amazed to this day, having looking back on some of the original pictures and, and whatnot. Uh, every, every time I go out there, I'm amazed, and, and I do spend a lot of time out in that area. Derek, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, and I'm sure you get asked the same thing, is if these are Sasquatch nests, uh, have they been back? Have you seen any evidence that they've been back? And if, if so, why? And if not, why? Yeah, well, at this point right now, almost three years later, we cannot, we don't have any evidence that they have been back to this place. And uh, the, what we're basing that on is, you know, obviously when we're in country, we're looking for tracks. Now, there have been a couple probable tracks found in the area uh, by us, by, by the groups that we're working with. And, uh, but as far as revisiting the nests, it doesn't appear that they have been back. Whatever's building these nests has been back, added to the nests, or made any new ones in this area. And so that you know, begs the question, why? And you would have to, this area is so vast. You know, if you look at this area from over, over, overhead, it's a huge area. You know, the Olympics are gigantic, obviously. And so there's a lot of ravines. <laughs> there's a lot of ravines and a lot of ridges. Yeah. And to search them all would be, you know, you'd never get it done with thousands of people. The thing is, one of the things I think, I don't know if it was David Ellis that brought it up or somebody brought it up, but if you are in an area and you, because one of the things when we, when we, when we walked into this primary nesting area for the first time, one of the first things that struck you was the devastation of the foliage everywhere. Mm-hmm. You would take an area that's about 90 feet wide by about 120 feet deep, and every single huckleberry bush in this area had been broken, broken and peeled off anywhere from three feet up to eight feet off the ground, broken, and then all of the spoils from all the breakage fabric used to fabricate these nests. So it was a lot of damage, and you could see it. When you walked into it, you're like, what the hell happened here? And then you start looking around at all this damage and all these broken limbs, and then you start seeing these nests on the ground. Well, at this point, three years later, may like I said, may will be three years, a lot of that damage is, is getting unrecognizable because the foliage is growing back. And so, again, I think it was David Ellis that, that, that pointed out the possibility that maybe they are conscious of the damage that it took to create these nests, and it's very mm-hmm. obvious to any wandering eye and maybe maybe that's one of the reasons that they don't come back maybe every other three to five years. They give the foliage a chance to regenerate to where it's not so obvious. And I think there, there could be something to that. And it, the interesting thing is now, three years later, uh, you walk into the area, you know, the nests on the ground are still discernible, but the, all the broken foliage everywhere is becoming undiscernible because it's grown back. And uh, so maybe they'll use an area, utilize an area in, in all the breaks and stuff, and then and leave that area until it reforests itself. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a hypothesis, but it, it could be. You know, yeah. there, there could very well be something to that. So we are still monitoring this primary area. You know, we don't monitor it heavy. We go in, you know, every couple months, you know, mm-hmm. month, 
to two months and, and look around to see if anything new has happened. But, uh, you know, I think there could be something to that. Uh, there very well could be something to that. And they could actually do this on a three- to five- to eight-year rotation and still never run out of ravines, <laughs> you know, because there's, there's just so oh, much man. country, you yeah. know. So maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe it's a rotation, you know. So yeah. I'm just not sure. Very, very interesting insight because, I, and I totally agree, having been out to this area multiple times, is the fact that, you know, when I initially walked in there, the devastation in this small area on this ridge was vast. I mean, you could see something had been in this area for, you know, an extended period of time, whatever that may be, and it kind of devastated this little area. Um, you don't really recognize it until you're right in this area. And now right. over the years, over the years, everything's kind of growing back, and nature's taking over, and, and the huckleberry's growing back thick. The limbs, you know, every, all the snaps are being hidden by the new growing saplings and whatnot, and the ground is is, is taking itself over again. And that's something I've noticed. Uh, that's the reason that I've I've kind of upped the ante when I'm now out there collecting samples, of specifically hair from some of these nests, because it's it's slowly been taken over. But there was, you know, a, a plethora of time where we just let a lot of these areas be, you know. I mean, we, we talk about trail cameras. I mean, there was a, a needle in a haystack, a few cameras out there, you know, uh, in, in a couple in er- a couple areas. But basically, a lot of these nests were left untouched, not messed with. And now, you know, going back in there now, because nature's taking its course, you know, collecting a little bit more hair and whatnot from these nests. But we have found some interesting impressions adjacent to, to these nests in, in some of the, the, the lower areas, which is interesting. But, uh, you know, who's to say, you know, what's going on there truly? I mean, we don't know. So I'll tell you what, the salmon keep coming up the creek and the huckleberries growing back. We can't rule right. out that whatever made these nests won't be back. I actually assume at some point in given time, especially if we associate these with Sasquatch nests, that as Sasquatch nests, that in, indeed if, if Sasquatch is some sort of uh, primate, that they maybe back you know uh, we i've talked to uh, cindy cadell who's you know an anthropologist and an archaeologist <laughs> she's got a quite the credentials there it's also a limb project member she's given some interesting hypotheses as to what we should be looking for down the road here and you know it's a work in progress right. a fantastic area i mean a fantastic area with possible new results down the road yeah and i think we'll it's see. important to note yeah. as well when we were you know in the first year as we were exploring this uh, very long ravine and the, and the ridge, uh, because the way these nests were found, if there's anybody listening that doesn't know anything, hasn't heard this before, the nests were stretched out on finger ridges running up and down this ravine. And so in the primary nesting area, there were eight nests there. And then as we would go to the next finger ridge, we would find two or three more. And then we would go to the next finger ridge over and we'd find another two or three. And then the next finger ridge, and then they finally petered out. But they weren't all just in one, you know, primary area. But the the thing is, when when one of these nests were being constructed, the devastation to the foliage right around the nest was very obvious. I mean, but you'd have to be right up next to it to see it. But uh, James Million, uh, when we, you know, in the first year, he was out there a lot with us, and you know, he he actually pointed out that you could kind of, as you're looking up through the, you know, start looking for breaks, you know, off in the distance and near a, near a large tree. And then, he, you know, you were with him, I think, a couple times there, and you guys were able yeah. to locate a couple of the nests just by seeing the busted foliage above the nest from distance. And, and then you'd get right up, and they, yep, lo and behold, there'd be a nest there. So it was just yeah, pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. We were definitely looking for patterns there, and, and James really keyed in on 
a couple of unique things that actually led to more nests, uh, and, and those were patterns based on the other nest finds. And I and and you know it worked out that we did find more, and there did seem to be um, somewhat of a pattern going on there. And that to me, for me personally, when I look at these nests, and I spent a lot of time out there, like I've said, and, and really, I still to this day sit down and try to gather all the information and think about this. Uh, there's a lot of intelligence behind where these nests are laid out, the positioning of these nests, and everything else that went in, you know, the construction of the nest. Uh, there's a lot of intelligence, it seems to me. Well, yeah, you know, and, and one of the things you know, to note, you know, as far as the patterning, all 21 nests were approximately the same distance with a couple exceptions, but were approximately the same distance from the creek, but strung out up and down this ridge. And then they were also located right on the, right right where a ridge starts falling over to where you'd be up on a ridge, it would level out, and then it would just drop. Well, right, where it, right before it dropped, right on these finger ridges is where these nests are located with very good escape routes right out the bottom of them down into the ravines. And, and zero chance of approaching them from behind unnoticed because of the walls of brush. So, yeah, the, the patterns are, there's a lot of patterns and very consistent, you know, th- with this particular area. Oh, well, well yeah, I mean, I, I've touched upon this before. I know you have with the amount of patterns, and one of the patterns I've noticed is that these are areas that people don't go to. And when these nests, and I, I do believe there have been nests found, possible nests found uh, of this nature and caliber throughout history, and not not to the size of some of these nests. And what I mean is, you know, not to the the, the pure number. I mean, the, the 21 nests, you know, with the exception of maybe more that we've overlooked possibly. But the, the mm-hmm. pure number is amazing. But I do think uh, that there's been a there's been some nests found throughout history. But usually, uh, as it seems to be found by the same sort of individual, which is somebody involved with the timber industry, mm-hmm. whether it's in California or uh, Prince of Wales Island or uh, Oregon or Washington, uh, British Columbia, uh, these nests have been found, I believe, uh, similarly constructed, yet yet looked at and been, you know, this is interesting, but overlooked, um, possibly more nests in the area, but overlooked because uh, these aren't things people are looking for, and when they stumble across them, they're interesting. The Olympic Project right here uh, now was very fortunate uh, with a lot of circumstances in the, uh, the the find and the subsequent work done on these nests. Uh, you know, do you do you think, Derek, given what we're doing and others might be possibly, you know, those listening in might be looking for the same thing? Do you think there's a possibility to find more? Absolutely, absolutely. Because if it happens here, it's happening somewhere else. You know, regardless of what it is. You know, because again, we're not we're not going down the avenue of saying these are Bigfoot beds. That's not what we're doing. We're just we're saying that you know we're we're <laughs> kind of coming up with that conclusion here at a rapid <laughs> right. click, but that's not what we're saying, and you know we'll never say that until we can verify it and prove it. But uh, yeah, I think I think that that's that's the cool thing about this study is we can take this ball of information and these patterns that we've just basically touched on tonight, but these patterns and pass this information on to other people that want to go look in areas that are similar. And I think that that's going to be one of the coolest things that comes out of this, to see if we can find another ravine somewhere, even if it's in a different mountain range, you know, or somewhere, you know, down in Oregon or somewhere else on the Olympics, on another side of the Olympics or whatever, and and, and see if this is repeatable, you know, see if it, it can be found again, you know, because it's just going to paint more of a complete picture. And, uh, you know, and hopefully, hopefully these DNA tests give us a clue as to what, what's happening. Uh, you know, fingers are crossed. 
So there's just there's a lot of cool information, and just I'm very we're very fortunate that we were led to this place in the first place, and again given. Yeah ample time to study it. You know, it's kind of the perfect storm. We got real lucky. Well, uh, you know, being in the right place at the right time doesn't hurt. Derek, you build up quite a an organization with the Olympic Project. Before I was involved with the Olympic Project, uh, I knew it to be a very respected organization, a very um, uh, group, uh, a group that really adhered to the scientific method. And so uh, that, to me, speaks volumes about not just the Olympic Project, but uh, what you're about and and what's going on down the road here, and specifically what's going on all you know what's involved in the study of these nests. But do, Derek, do you ever do you ever get discouraged with with the research and what you're seeing out there? Do you ever get discouraged and you just want to opt out? Uh, you know, nest stuff, uh, which is exciting aside. Sure, absolutely. You know, absolutely. I think there's a lot of goofy crap going on in the Bigfoot world, but there always has been. You know, it's just now you can see it up close and personal because of social media. But uh, yeah, I get discouraged with with you know I basically I'm a funny guy. I'm a very you know me, and I'm really <laughs> skeptical with evidence and with te- testimony. Uh, I, I've I've turned into a very skeptical person. I'm 52 years old, and every every day that goes by, I become more skeptical of human testimony and more skeptical of what people say they saw. And part of that is in, in due to the fact that I researched sightings for so many years and and chased sightings all up and down the west coast uh for years and and took many 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 times i was able to prove the witness wrong you know in one way or another and uh back in the day i used to blindly believe people a lot more than i do now and it's not just people it's just it's just a dynamic of bigfoot research right now i mean people i have no problem with people believing in the paranormal or the what you call the woo side of it or whatever people are entitled to believe whatever they want to believe but i just uh i don't know you you know as well as i do there's just so many different factions and camps in bigfoot research and it, it's just kind of a shame you know so what i've tried to do what i've tried to maintain you know, throughout the years of the Olympic project, is that we just we we kind of keep we kind of stay skeptical. We try to utilize the scientific method as much as we're capable of. You know, we're not scientists; we're not claiming to be, but we are just trying to do the research correctly and and documenting stuff. You know, documentation, documentation, documentation. You know, we're, we're trying to do that part right. And I, I guess the days of yeah, I saw a Sasquatch and it was right over there, and, and you know, I just that that. <laughs> I don't even pay attention anymore to that stuff. Not that these people didn't see something, but nothing comes from it. You know, right. there, there, you know, there's just there's no end game, you know, with that. And uh, before documentation, before extensive documentation, all it is is stories. You know, so it, getting the documentation done, you know, it, it tells a story, and it actually doing proper documentation on any given possible evidence will make you more skeptical. Hmm. You know, it just will. It'll just, it'll, yeah. just, it'll make you more skeptical about everything. So I just try to, you know, I, I, I'm not big, as you know, on putting evidence, possible evidence or anything like that on Facebook. I don't believe it's the right medium because people just argue about it, you know. And if we were to put this nest stuff all over the Internet, it's just going to be one giant argument. People think people that have never been there will tell you what they are. <laughs> it's like, you know, shut up. <laughs> yeah, I'm not asking anybody's opinion. We're trying to put together this 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 package of stuff that we think is evidence and, and we'll put it forward and write a paper on it when the time comes. But I am not up for arguing about it. And, and that's, that's what, you know, Facebook has turned into in so many instances. It's just a giant argument. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, disheartened with that for sure. 
and uh, like a lot of the stuff that's going on right now, the this uh, the lady that's trying to sue, I think the state of California right now, uh, to prove Bigfoot is real or, or whatever. You know, uh, I know I know Claudia. Uh, to me, I don't want the biggest problem I have with it. You know, because Todd Standing approached me actually before he approached her to do the same thing, and I very respectfully declined uh, for the simple re- well, a few reasons that I won't go into. But uh, I don't want the government involved. <laughs> I don't want right. the government regulating possible Bigfoot areas. Uh, the government screws up everything they touch. And uh, to include the government into anything Bigfoot-related, in my opinion, is a gigantic mistake. So that's disheartening, too. Uh, not that it's ever going to get there, because there is no empirical proof of Sasquatch at this point. So I don't think the, the court case is going to have any legs to stand on. But that's mm-hmm. just my opinion. But, yeah. uh, no, yeah. it's it's still – I love the research, you know, Shane, and you know that I love to research with my friends. That's what it's about. I love to research with the people that I look up to, and you're one of those people. You know, I, I, getting to work with you in the last few years has been fantastic. I mean, uh, you are – you know, for those of you guys that don't know Shane, Shane is an animal. He's an animal in the woods. He's a fantastic researcher. He's very observant and very smart, and uh, I, I love getting to work with you all the time. So I'm really glad you moved to Washington because that's been fantastic. <laughs> uh, so it, it's been good. I mean, you know, there's a bunch of disheartening stuff, but I'm in a place right now to where I, I really don't care <laughs> what anybody thinks or what anybody says or what anybody does. I spend my research time doing what I want to do, and that to me is the name of the game at this point. I don't do it for any, I don't do it for any other reason other than the fact that I love it and I want to learn more. Mm-hmm. And if you can keep it in perspective that way, then you'll enjoy your research. No, uh, Derek, uh, you know, wow, uh, quit blowing my head up here. No, well said. On a, <laughs> That's uh, true, on, man. Except for, maybe, except for maybe the stuff you said about me. But I'll, I will say that uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that's not shared publicly. Derek mentioned a few things now. Um, I did not know he was going to say some of those things. But, you know, Derek uh, lays, his stu- you know, lays his stuff on the table. He's a very um, uh, honest individual, a very profound researcher. Like I said at the beginning of the show, some of, I've, my term for him is not a friend anymore. It's family. And not just that, the research aspect is it's just phenomenal. Derek's just a profound guy all around. Now, Derek, there's a lot of people that are going to be listening to the show that want to uh, maybe get out in the field with you. I know for a fact that you will be joining Cliff uh, Berkman, you know, Cliff Berkman of Finding Bigfoot. He just announced, I noticed on Twitter, he, he announced a couple of outings that he's going to be doing in the Mount Hood up here, up in Oregon, a couple of outings out that way, and he announced that you will be joining him. How can, uh, I mean, uh, are you excited about that? Uh, how, how's that working out? Yeah, I, I love Cliff. He and I go way back, very, very dear friend. And uh, so it's kind of funny how, you know, how this works out, but so you know that, uh, as, as you know, because you've helped run them, but we've done, you know, lots of expeditions in the Olympics, and we used to bring in, you know, Dr. Meldrum, or we'd bring in Dr. Bendernagel, or we'd bring in Cliff, or Tom Steinberg. Uh, we'd bring somebody in, Paul Graves, somebody that would come in from the Bigfoot world that people know, and we'd have them there on the expedition, and they would go out in the field. The expedition attendees, we'd get to go out in the field with Cliff, or get to go out in the field with Dr. Meldrum, or whatever. And uh, so now, you know, we've backed off on the expedition thing, because we're trying to spend time with this nest area, but Cliff is now doing expeditions, and I can tell you, uh, if you haven't been out in the woods with Cliff, it is a treat. Cliff is a fantastic researcher, really smart guy. You don't get to know Cliff from watching Finding Bigfoot. You get to know Cliff by being one-on-one with him, and the guy is, uh, 
I admire him. He, he's a fantastic guy, and he's he's smarter than most of us. Uh, but anyway, so Cliff's running these expeditions, and he's got one going in August. He's got, I think, four or five actually booked. Yeah. But uh, he asked me if I'd come down and uh, just go out on one of his expeditions and be there with his patrons, you know, kind of like he's come up and been out on my expedition. So I quickly said yes. So I will be with Cliff somewhere, I think, in the Mount Hood National Forest uh, from August 2nd to August 5th. So it would be a great opportunity if somebody wants to get out there and uh, I love to meet people. And that would be, it's going to be a fun weekend. That's probably my only public type excursion this year that I'm going to do. So I'm looking forward to that one a lot. Yeah. No, I, I will tell you people, uh, for those that are listening to the show that know uh, me, I, I had an encounter in, in Mount Hood back in August of 2011. Uh, I know Cliff has a couple of key areas up there that he loves to research. Uh, Mount Hood is one of the top spots in the United States, in North America, um, that I believe Sasquatch resides. And I'll tell you what, to get a chance to be out with Cliff Berkman and Derek Randalls out in Mount Hood, I mean, uh, Sasquatch aside, it is an, a magnificent area, beautiful, really, uh, oh, I, I can't say enough about the area, to uh, be on the field with them. And, you know, who knows what could happen. All bets are off. Sasquatch aside, beautiful area. You're going to be surrounded by very uh, knowledgeable individuals that have been doing this a long time. Hey, look it up, check into it. Uh, that's a trip that hey, I might even pay to go to because it's a uh, <laughs> two two of my two of my favorite individuals in the world that are so knowledgeable and so. Uh, but hey, Derek, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you know, you're just down the road from me, but it's been a pleasure <laughs> talking to you and, and having you join me on Monster X Radio. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, but hey, uh, boots on the ground. We're gonna get back out there, and uh, uh, I'd love to have you back on the show sometime soon. Well, thanks, Shane, and it, it is a pleasure to work with you and to have you right here, brother. Uh, I'm very, very, very stoked about what we got going, man, and uh, we got a lot of fun to have and a lot of stuff to learn. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, and uh, have a good evening. Hey, thanks, Derek. Hey, uh, ladies and gents, it's been a fantastic show. Uh, like I said, you know, I, I can't say enough about Derek Randall's and the research that he's been doing for 30-plus years. Been working on these nest sites for a number of years now. Uh, you heard me talk about him on the show uh, in Gunner, and uh, we've had Derek on the show before. You know, exciting times uh, in the Bigfoot field. Uh, we're taking, I believe, you know, not tooting my own horn here, but believe that the uh, the Sasquatch uh, research subject is, is being taken to a new level, regardless of whatever comes of the nest. Um, you know, I got my hopes and, you know, whatnot. I know Derek does. But regardless, hey, you know what? Involving science and science-involved, and doing uh, those predecessors, doing those individuals that have been doing this a lot longer than any of us here, uh, including the late John Bindernagel, uh, Justice, uh, something he was very passionate about. You know what? Uh, leaves me with a good feeling, uh, and I want to do those individuals justice. But I really do appreciate everybody listening in to this episode, and we'll, uh, we'll be back again next week with another episode of Monster X Radio, where today's subject of myth could be your tomorrow's reality. We'll talk to you next time.
thank you for joining Monster X Radio. 